is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to bring you the story of a song. We've done Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, Light My Fire and Riders on the Storm by The Doors, There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, Gimme Shelter by The Rolling Stones, and many others that you can hear at ouramericannetwork.org. And just click the button, Story of a Song, and you can listen to all of them. And now it's time for the story of a song that we all know. Aretha Franklin's Respect. Here's Jesse. Written by Otis Redding in 1965, it became Aretha Franklin's signature song and a number one hit by June of 67. It brought her two Grammy Awards in 1968 and quickly became the soundtrack for feminism and civil rights around the world. When I recorded it, uh, it was pretty much a male-female thing and, and more in a general sense from person to person. Uh, I'm going to give you respect, and I'd like to have that respect back, or I expect respect to be given back. The original version was from a man's point of view. What you want, honey, you got it. And what you need, baby, you got it. All I'm asking for After Otis Redding wrote the song for Speedo Sims, he decided to rewrite the lyrics and speed up the rhythm, recording it himself for his third album. Otis realized that he had a hit, and so did producer Jerry Wexler, who brought it to Aretha Franklin. Well, I heard Mr. Redding's version of it. I just loved it, and uh, I decided that I wanted to record it. And my sister Carolyn and I got together. I was living in a small apartment uh, on the west side of Detroit, and... um, piano by the window, watching the cars go by, and uh, we came up with that infamous line, the socket to me line. It was a cliche of the day. Actually, we didn't just come up with it. It, was, it really was cliche. The song was recorded on February 14th of 1967 in New York City's Atlantic Studios with Aretha behind the piano while using the Muscle Shoals rhythm section as the band. Franklin added lyrics where she demands her propers when she gets home. This is most likely the first reference of the term props in modern hip-hop terminology. That line there, TCB, it's an abbreviation commonly used in the 60s and 70s, meaning taking care of business. It's often misquoted as take out TCP or something similar because most music sheets include this incorrect line, possibly because people who transcribed Franklin's words for music sheets weren't familiar with the hip vernacular of the late 1960s. TCB was not present in Redding's original song, but were included in some of his later performances. At the Monterey Pop Festival, the same year Aretha Franklin's cover was released, Otis played the song live, saying that Aretha had taken it. This is another one of mine. Song we like to do for everybody. Love Cry. This song is a song that a girl took away from me. Good friend of mine. This girl, she just took this song, but I'm still gonna do it anyway. 
Tom Dowd was the engineer for the Aretha Franklin recording session. He worked for Atlantic Records, who had an arrangement with Stax, where Otis Redding recorded. Dowd worked with Redding, which led to Aretha's cover. I mean, he was under the influence of Sam Cooke and a lot of traditional blues artists and gospel blues artists. But Otis had this song, Respect, which was his expression of a hard-working, dense-southern black man coming home after a week at work and saying... We're going to dance, and I don't want to hear nothing about this and that, and they didn't mind those pin curls and telling me you don't feel well. And this. We're going to dance and talk. We're going to party. Give me my dude. Give me my respect. That was, that was the significance of Otis' song. And it was a male macho, work with me, Annie, let's dance tonight song. Okay? Um, three, four years later, as we're doing the Aretha album, Aretha comes up with her version of the same song. But we're talking a transition period of three years and where all of a sudden Aretha being such a powerful... Now, Otis was powerful as a man. Aretha was powerful as a woman. But times were changing. And here is an embryo women's lib, black women's lib song where here comes this chick on strong instead of being the shrinking violet in the world. No, don't hit me no more. Just come on. Give me my propers when I get home. R-E-S-P. And she tears the pants off the song. It was the same song. It was a hit both times. It just depended which world you were living in, which one you liked. But damn, it was a hot song. While Otis Redding's version peaked at number four for just one day in October of 1965, Aretha's version was number one for two weeks in June of 1967. Respect became an international hit, reaching number 10 in the UK, helping transform Franklin from a domestic star into an international sensation. This is Our American Story. To hear more, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Stories, and we're joined now by one of our favorite 
best-selling authors and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, Brad Meltzer. His most recent book, The First Conspiracy, is his first stab at nonfiction, and it's about a secret plot to kill George Washington. I found this story nearly a decade ago in the place where all good stories hide, which is in the footnotes. And I remember going through that footnote and seeing the words that said something like there was a secret plot to kill George Washington. And I remember stopping on that and going, is that real? Is that fake? Is that nonsense? What is it? And it was real. In 1776, there really was a secret plot to kill George Washington. When George Washington found out about it, he gathered up those responsible. He built a gallows. He took one of the main co-conspirators and he hanged him in front of 20,000 people, the largest public execution at that point in North American history. George Washington brought the hammer down, was like, do not mess with me. I'm George Washington. I'm going to be on the money one day. And uh, I became obsessed with this story. And the first thing I did is I went to Pulitzer Prize winning author Joseph Ellis, who wrote one of the great George Washington biographies. And I said, you know the story about to kill Washington? He said, I know the story. He said, but the reason it's hard to research is it's a story about George Washington's spies. And you can find out, he explained, exactly how many slaves George Washington owned, but you'll never find all his spies. By its nature, he told me, what you're searching for will forever be elusive. But he said, you got to try. He's like, at the best case scenario, you get a book out of it. At the worst, you, uh, you have an adventure. And I love an adventure. And I'll tell you that the first thing I did is I called my friend Josh Mensch. And when we did a TV show, many people know my the shows that I used to do on the History Channel. One was called Decoded and one was called Lost History. And one of the things we did on Lost History is we searched for lost historical artifacts. And on the very first episode, we told the story of the famous flag that the firefighters raised at Ground Zero on 9-11. Everyone knows that famous photograph of the firefighters raising the flag. Well... We were, the flag 24 hours later went missing, and it was gone for over a decade. And we wanted to get it back. So we told the story of the missing flag, who had seen it last, where it was. And four days after that first episode aired, a man walked into a fire station in Washington State and said, I saw the show Lost History. This is the 9-11 flag. I want to return it. It actually worked. And we spent nearly a year authenticating this flag. We worked with the former head of the FBI's art crimes unit. They, we got to uh, authenticate it and unveil it in, on the 15th anniversary of 9-11 in the 9-11 Museum, where it is still on display. One of the most amazing, humbling moments of my life. And, and the truth was, we got a lot of credit for it, but the credit was for the whole team. And that team was led by a man named Josh Mensch, who was an award-winning documentarian. And he was our best researcher, our best writer. And I said to him, I want to do the secret plot to kill George Washington. It's going to be hard to research. You want to jump down the rabbit hole with me? And he said yes. And that's where the book started. And what was really interesting to us as we really got into the plot is what happened and, and how it kind of unfolded. It was, it was a plot that really starts with George Washington had his own private bodyguards. And he had asked all of his top military leaders, he said, give me your four best men. He wanted the best of the best. George Washington personally narrowed it down to about 50 men. And those became what they called the General's Guard, some called the Commander's Guard. But the name that stuck was this title, the Lifeguards, because part of their job was to guard George Washington's life. And these were the men who turned on George Washington. These were the one men who were in the plot 
to come after George Washington. And it was a stunning revelation when we found that out for me. Uh, what I thought was so amazing is what George Washington does when he, they start getting wind of what's going on is he launches a secret committee that no one knows about. And he puts eventually John Jay in charge of the three men who are eventually in, in working in this committee. It's called the Committee on Conspiracies. And that's their job, to find out the conspiracies, find out who's plotting against them. And what's amazing is uh, it's led by John Jay, who eventually becomes the first Supreme Court justice. But at the time, in 1776, John Jay is just getting started. And he starts knocking on doors, trying to find suspects, pulling them out, interrogating them. What he's doing in the process is he's building America's first counterintelligence agency. And I can tell you that right now people will say, oh, that the precursor to the CIA is the OSS. It's not. It actually traces back to this moment and the plot to go after Washington. In fact, right now, in CIA headquarters in Arlington, um, in Langley, I should say, there is a room dedicated to John Jay, who they call the founding father of counterintelligence. And so you'll see that this plot also gives us the birth of counterintelligence in America, because we learn, and George Washington learns, you don't just need a good offense, a good army to win the war, you need a good defense too. You need to know what's coming. You need that intelligence. And what was, I think, fascinating to me as we looked into the story, you know, George Washington is one of the most, arguably the most famous American who ever lived. But we also, just as oddly, know the least about him as a person. He's not like Jefferson or John Adams, who writes these flowing letters home so we know all of his feelings. George Washington played everything close to the chest, barely, you know, on the day that they, you know, they hang this man in front of 20,000 people, it barely mentions a, a, in his diary what happened. If I murdered someone in front of 20,000 people, I'd be like, your diary had a rough day. But George Washington instead, just again, barely mentions it. And we always take our heroes in America, we dip them in granite, and we hold them up to worship them. And we do them a huge disservice. Because anyone who you look up to, whether it's George Washington, any hero you have in your life, Dr. King, Rosa Parks, whoever it might be, have moments where they were scared and terrified, where they didn't know if they could go forward. And they do. And it was the same with George Washington. You know, the story that we tell, especially about the American Revolution, is, you know, we just held hands and the military came together. We dreamed of democracy. We took down the British, the greatest fighting force who ever lived. It's a wonderful, inspiring story, but it is by no means the true story. It is a legend and myth, and we're a country founded on legends and myths, and the legends and myths we love most are our own. Back then, you think we're divided today? We were just as divided back then. In 1776, in New York City, there were nearly as many loyalists on the, on the British side as there were patriots on the American side. And the people you were, you know, were your neighbors. You didn't know if they wanted to kill you. You had no idea. It was the same in our own military. There were just lots of regiments, as Massachusetts one, Virginia one, you know, Connecticut one. We weren't some unified army at the beginning. And, in fact, there's a scene in the book where you see George Washington uh, brings all of his troops, trying to bring them together in Harvard Square, in Harvard Yard in Massachusetts. And the Massachusetts regiment sees the uniforms of the Virginia regiment, which has something frilly on their uniforms, start making fun, mouthing off. Fight breaks out, and George Washington races in, sees his own men fighting, grabs them, shaking them, saying, what are you doing? Why, stop fighting with each other. We're on the same team. If ever there were a metaphor for where we are today, there it is. And we have to remember that our greatest heroes are the ones that pull us together, not to pull us apart. And speaking of that hero, it's amazing to watch George Washington in that moment. 
Because, you know, we love to tell this great story that George Washington's the greatest leader who ever lived. But if you look at the real history of it, if you really take it apart, you can see that George Washington, in the very first battle, the Battle of Brooklyn in 1776, when the British invade, we get our butts kicked. We don't win. We get our butts kicked. George Washington gets out generals. He doesn't have the experience of the British generals. In fact, he gets pinned down. He's got the British in front of him. He's got the East River behind him. This is the moment George Washington should die. There's no way to run. He should die in this moment. And instead, George Washington does the best thing he always does. He adapts. He plans a daring escape in the middle of the night. And as a fog rolls in on the East River, they commandeer every boat they can find along the East River. And one by one, slowly start putting their men aboard these boats. But what happens is something really incredible is George Washington won't get on any of the boats until he makes sure that his men, even the lowest ones, are aboard first. They see him risking his life for theirs. And not that that's the magic moment that brings America together. There are plenty before and plenty after. But boy, does that show you what a leader is. It shows you. I love the when you read the first conspiracy, you get to see the secret plot against George Washington. But what I love even more uh, is that you get to see the depth of George Washington's character in this book. And it's so vital today, especially as we think of our own leaders. And Meltzer is so right. And the nation was deeply divided. Some estimate a third were with the British crown, a third were with the patriots, and a third were just hiding under their chairs, hoping it would blow over. And by the way, we have a terrific hour on the war inside Ben Franklin's house. The book was The Loyal Son by Daniel Mark Epstein. And it turns out Ben Franklin and his son were on opposing sides. The son was the royal governor of New Jersey, and Ben Franklin implored him to join the Patriots. He did not. And Franklin's own son ended up in a terrible prison in Litchfield, Connecticut, two years in solitary, and then ultimately exiled to England. The father and son never reconciled. So it is so true what Brad Meltzer said. The country, well, it was divided at its birth. When we come back, we'll continue with Brad Meltzer. The book is The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington. Turn to best-selling author and friend of this show, Brad Meltzer. When we left off, Brad was telling us about the depth of George Washington's character from his book, The First Conspiracy. One of my favorite stories from the book. It's one of the last experiences I had. I was in uh, Kennebunkport, Maine, uh, a number of months ago, honoring Barbara Bush, who was a dear friend of, of my wife and I. We'd done a lot of literacy work with Mrs. Bush. There was no politics about it. Her dream was to teach everyone to read, whether you were old, whether you were young, black, white, Hispanic, immigrant, whatever you were from, that's how you unlock the American dream. I loved her for that dream. And we were honoring Mrs. Bush after she passed away. And now we know that President George H.W. Bush is sick. And we know what's happening at this point. It's a couple months ago, a few months ago, I should say. And they bring us into, um, they, they told me that they were bringing in some of his favorite authors to read to him. 
and they asked me to come in and read to them. And I said, I'd be honored. And I go into the office and, um, and we know what's happening, right? This is the end. And it's me and my wife. It's President Bush is there, his service dog, Sully, Secret Service, leave, leave us alone. And we can tell what's about that. And they, in fact, they tell me that, listen, he's, he's sleeping a lot these days and he's going to fall asleep within about 10 minutes. So just you'll be in there 10 minutes. And that, that, I said, that, that'd be, I'd be honored. And I walk in his office. There's a stack of about half a dozen books piled on his desk. One of them is my book, The First Conspiracy. He had given me a blurb on the book. President Clinton had given me a blurb on the book. Um, but this book, I give it to him, sent it to him months and months ago. This one looks like it's been read like over and over. It just looks dog-eared. And I say, sir, you, you want to read this book? And he's not really talking much back then. He says, mm-hmm. He can say, mm-hmm. And I pick up my copy of The First Conspiracy, and I brought this section, one of my favorite sections to read in there, is where George Washington, for the very first time, has the Declaration of Independence read to his troops. And sure enough, in 10 minutes, President Bush has fallen asleep. And then I get to those words, those words we all know. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And in that moment, President Bush's eyes pop open. He's wide awake, locked on me, like as if the Declaration of Independence is just part of his lifeblood. And I get to the end of the chapter and I say, sir, you want to read another chapter? And he says, "Uh uh-huh. And I, we get to the end of that one. I said, sir, you want to read another? Uh-huh. And then another? Uh-huh. And we go through, and instead of being there for 10 minutes, I'm there for a full hour. And when I'm done, I shake his hand. And I say, thank you. I know it's the last time I'm ever going to see him. I thank him for, personally for what he's done for me and for the country. And we leave there. And I can tell you that when President Bush passed away, one of the things that struck me was that in so many of the tributes to him, I saw one word that was used over and over, which was this word, decency, decency. And yes, that's because he was such a decent guy, but it's also because I think as a culture right now, we're starving for decency. No politics about it. Whatever side you're on, Democrat or Republican, we're starving for decency. And I think it's why we love those leaders like George Washington, like George Bush, leaders who are modest and who are humble. Uh, And I think right now on social media, we celebrate those in our culture who are good at calling attention to themselves, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, who write in all caps and multiple exclamation points telling you that they have all the answers. But our best leaders are the modest, hardworking ones. Uh, and I think that when I worked on the first conspiracy, one of the great things that I was able to do was to get that reminder for myself in the form of George Washington. And with that, I'd like to read to you from the first chapter, the opening scene, the prologue, of the first conspiracy. New York, New York, April 1776. The trap is set. It's quiet on this night. Moonlight shines over a clearing in a dense wood. The silence is broken by the drumbeat of hooves in the distance, growing steadily louder. Soon a dozen uniformed men on horseback emerge from the blackness, followed by a dark covered coach. The party halts not far from a large wooden manor house that sits at the clearing's edge. A few of the riders dismount and prime their muskets, standing guard. They scan the clearing, apparently thinking all is safe. They're wrong. A moment later, the coach door opens, and a man in a long coat steps out from the darkness. His name is George Washington, the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. The trap is planned for him. 
He has no idea it's coming. For the last nine months since the day he was appointed to his command, Washington has had a nearly impossible task. Organize a scattered mess of backwards militias and untrained volunteers into a functioning national army. And not just into any army. This small, inexperienced, poorly equipped army needs to stand up to what is probably the biggest and most powerful military force in the world. By any normal measure, they don't stand a chance. And Washington knows this, just as he knows that with every decision he makes, thousands of young soldiers' lives could be lost. Tonight, even more is at risk. Washington has just arrived in the western woods of Manhattan, about two miles north from New York City's bustling commercial district that covers the island's southern tip. He's just finished a week-long journey from Boston, and he's here now to fortify the city against the first major British offensive of the war. What he's facing is terrifying. Sometime in the next few weeks or months, the massive fleet of the vaunted British Navy will swarm into New York Harbor. Hundreds of ships and tens of thousands of soldiers prepared to invade the city. They're coming. It's just a question of when. The colonies have placed all of their hope and trust in him. It is up to this one man, George Washington, to lead the small continental army and withstand the massive attack. Tonight, among the soldiers accompanying Washington, a few are dressed differently than the rest, in short blue and white coats with small brass buttons. They're known as the lifeguards, an elite group of specially trained soldiers who are handpicked to serve as Washington's bodyguards. He takes special pride in these soldiers, and he trusts them above all others. In the faint moonlight, Washington slowly walks toward the nearby manor house, which will serve as his headquarters for the next few critical weeks before the British attack. And what George Washington doesn't know is that here in Manhattan, the coming battle isn't the only thing he should fear. There are other enemies waiting for him, enemies more sinister than even the British Army. At this exact moment, three miles away due south in the New York Harbor, a ship is anchored in the darkness. On board is one of the most powerful men of the colonies, the exiled governor of New York, and he is masterminding a clandestine plan to strike a knife into the heart of the colony's rebellion. In the dead of night, small boats carrying spies shuttle back and forth to him, delivering intelligence from shore. At the same time, two miles away from where Washington now stands, the mayor of New York City, working in concert with the governor, carries a secret cache of money. His plan? To tempt Washington's soldiers to betray their army and their country in a breathtaking act of treason. And several blocks from the mayor's office in one of the city's underground jails, three prisoners whisper to each other in a dank cell out of earshot of the guards. They have no idea that their quiet murmurs could change the future of the continent. They are all players in an extraordinary plot, a deadly plot against George Washington. Most extraordinary of all, some of the key members of this plot are in George Washington's own inner circle, the very men in whom he has placed his greatest trust. You could call it America's first great conspiracy, but at this moment, America doesn't yet exist. Some of the details of this scheme are still shrouded in mystery, but history does provide enough clues for an astonishing story. This is a story of soldiers, spies, traitors, redcoats, turncoats, criminals, prostitutes, politicians, great men, terrible men, and before it's over, the largest public execution ever to take place on North American shores. It all happens amazingly within days of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. That's not all. The discovery of this plot and the effort to investigate it led colonial authorities to devise new systems of intelligence gathering and counterespionage. In many ways, this strange plot against George Washington would lead to the establishment 
of a whole new field of American spycraft, now known as counterintelligence. At the center of it is a deadly conspiracy against one man, the man on whose life the very future of America depends. This is Brad Meltzer. You're listening to Our American Stories. And thank you to Brad for that reading and for his terrific book, The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington. Available at bradmeltzer.com and everywhere that books are sold. This is Lee Habib, Brad Meltzer, the story of George Washington, and the secret plot to kill him here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and this is the story of how a Florida couple kept seven siblings, four brothers and three sisters, ages 12 to 4, together that were separated throughout four different foster homes. Sophia and Deshaun Olds, both 33, got married in 2004, and they admit that as newlyweds, they were too busy with schooling and serving in the military, both veterans who served overseas in Iraq, to think about starting a family. This is the story of how one childless married couple of 13 years became a family of nine, literally, overnight. We thought like we would never, ever get adopted, but I thought this was like a really good blessing for us. I never actually had a mom and a dad under the same roof. But it feels great. It's like they both like a half of something, like peanut butter and jelly. Hello, I'm Deshaun O's. And I'm Sophia O's. And we would like to tell you about our process, our story of adoption. We have always wanted to adopt. We've been married for about 13 years now. And it had always been in our plans to adopt and to have biological children. We actually took the classes in 2006 and were preparing to adopt a child. However, we couldn't agree upon an age. So we postponed it, got busy with life, enjoying life, continuing in our careers in college, military, us traveling. We just were enjoying life. We were having a wonderful time together with family, with friends. I know a lot of people probably wonder and question why is it that they don't have biological children? It just never happened for us. In 2013, I took a pregnancy test and the test came back positive. And it was the scariest thing to me. I cried and I cried and I cried because I wasn't ready to be a mother. I know that being a mother is one of the most important jobs, number one, in this world. And I guess I felt like I wasn't ready to do that, that I couldn't be that yet. And a couple days later, um, I miscarried. It was confirmed by the doctors, and I had miscarried. 
And again, I felt another form of sadness because, you know, a, a child that we would have, we no longer would have. Even though we were early on in our pregnancy, it was it was still devastating for me. No, I hadn't felt the baby kick. I hadn't felt the baby move, but it was devastating. But again, we continued life. Also, we were very active in our local church. So we were active in, my husband is the youth pastor, children's church, ages what? Four to 12, always been a part of my life just to help out with children in the church. And I guess one thing, what we always did is that every time we gave our offering, we had on the back of it, um, adopted child on there. And then it was just no surprise that this story came out the day after Thanksgiving. And the day after Thanksgiving, what most people are doing is shopping. How we are shopping and we saw the story on Facebook, these seven children who needed a home. It was home for the holidays. And one scripture just came to my mind is that in my father's house there's many rooms and I go prepare a place for you. And in the Lord's Prayer, we do things on earth as it is in heaven. So we had a space to truly be to open our home for seven children. And we knew that we had everything that these children needed. They needed a mother, a father. They needed stability, structure, discipline with us having military. They needed love, they needed care. My husband being a teacher, me and being in social work, having those skills, the spiritual background, everything. We were just putting our whole hope and our whole trust and all of our, our dreams and our ambitions and our life in his hands. We were surrendering all when we decided to adopt our seven children. Yeah, and once we put our faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. These students I've been serving at Rutherford High School, their parents came together and said, what can we do, what can we do? They did everything from bringing furniture to build bunk beds to donate sports equipment to donate groceries. One parent is a farmer and truly just slaughtered a pig for us. So we have sausage, bacon, and everything else. And also, our families, a day hasn't gone by that they haven't asked us or given to us, whether it be snacks for the children to take to school, whether it be cooking up a big pot of llama beans, helping out, cooking food, getting the children off the bus when we picking both have oranges. to work, picking oranges, whatever it is, any extra that they have had, anything that they could give, whether it be $5, we have had that outpouring from our families from both sides. We have had that from complete strangers that live thousands and thousands of miles away. It has been no stress, no struggle at all. And I do believe that that goes back to us doing the will of God to help build his kingdom, to provide a home for, as the Bible calls them, orphans. You know, that is something that the Bible states we should do. Yes, in James 127, it says true religion is to take care of the orphans. And we all know that it is more blessed to give than to receive if we were allowed to adopt these seven children, we would do it. We would work every day of our lives to make sure that they are cared for. 
And I think what's most important too is for them to see and to have an example of what it's like to have a father who is the head of the household, who has a strong faith and belief in God and who can teach them, who can lead the family. And I know that they enjoy that. I know that they feel privileged and proud to know that their dad is up there teaching them. You can see the smiles on their face and they enjoy talking about it afterwards. They ask lots of questions. Um, So that whole aspect has been wonderful to have him up front teaching our children um, about God, about the things that they should do in life to be saints, to be good children, to grow up, to be successful. Yep. And I like to just thank for my spiritual fathers because I do not have a biological father involved in my life, but my spiritual fathers from my pastors to different men in my church too helped show me the way right there. And I could just use that to impart not only to my children, but all the children I minister to on a weekly basis. So I think it's important to know that in this story of adoption, I am not called to be a minister, to be behind a pulpit, to preach at a church, to be a pastor. But I know that this is my calling that God has placed in my life and I am embracing it. I am enjoying it. And that's why I can say that I am not stressed because it is something that we are doing that we are supposed to do. So it makes it so much easier. Does it require a lot from us? A lot of time, um, a lot of correction that we have to do, but it is also worth it, every part of it. This is what we're supposed to do in life. These seven children are our calling to be their mother and their father. And we take it just as serious as if Um, It was a pastor over a church or a CEO over a business. This is us, a manager over a team. This is us. This is what we are called to do. And we give him all the praise, the glory, the honor for it, because without him, we would not be able to do this. And we are doing it. And that is our story. And what a story it was. And thanks, Greg, for doing that. And thank you, Sophia and Deshaun Olds, for recording that. And for doing what you did, it's an inspiration. People listening who are thinking about it, well, just do it. Fill that house up with love. They immediately adopted seven children who needed a home. And one's a teacher. They didn't have the means, but they did it anyway. And look at the fruits of their love. And it was their faith, of course, the fruits of their faith. They just did it. They answered to a higher power. And by the way, NBC's Today Show, ABC News, Inside Edition, Miami Herald, Parents.com, and People, they all did this story, but they somehow managed to leave the faith walk of this couple out of the story. And just a few things they said, and it was Sophia who said this, once you put your faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. And in came the food, and in came the help from the family members, in came all that love. True religion is to take care of the orphans. And if more Christians in this great country did what this young couple did, my goodness, we could solve a lot of problems in our country. A lot of homeless problems, a lot of kids without parents. We'll bring these adoption stories to you because they're beautiful, and hopefully... 
They have some imitative power. That is, some of you listening may just decide to fill your home with some kids in need. This is Our American Story, Sophia and Deshaun Olds' story, and those seven kids they adopted, their stories too. our American stories, and we love bringing classic American stories read by great readers to you whenever we can. And in the past, we've done Vincent Price reading The Raven, and that's Edgar Allan Poe's epic poem. We had a great reading from Walt Whitman's O Pioneer, O Pioneer. We heard a great reader read parts and excerpts of Thomas Paine's Great Common Sense, Emerson's Self-Reliance, and of course, we heard Robert Frost read Robert Frost, and there's nothing like hearing Robert Frost read his own work. And today, we bring you a short story by Ernest Hemingway entitled A Day's Wait, and it's read by actor Stacy Keach. It was first published in Hemingway's 1933 short story collection, Winner Take Nothing, about a nine-year-old boy who's sick during a cold winter. He came into the room to shut the windows while we were still in bed and I saw he looked ill. He was shivering, his face was white, and he walked slowly as though it ached to move. What's the matter, Schatz? I've got a headache. You better go back to bed. No, I'm all right. You go to bed. I'll see you when I'm dressed. But when I came downstairs, he was dressed, sitting by the fire, looking a very sick and miserable boy of nine years. When I put my hand on his forehead, I knew he had a fever. You go up to bed, I said. You're sick. I'm all right, he said. When the doctor came, he took the boy's temperature. What is it? I asked him. One hundred and two. Downstairs, the doctor left three different medicines in different colored capsules with instructions for giving them. One was to bring down the fever, another a purgative, the third to overcome an acid condition. The germs of influenza can only exist in an acid condition, he explained. He seemed to know all about influenza and said there was nothing to worry about if the fever did not go above 104 degrees. This was a light epidemic of flu, and there was no danger if you avoided pneumonia. Back in the room, I wrote the boy's temperature down and made a note of the time to give the various capsules. Do you want me to read to you? All right, if you want to, said the boy. His face was very white, and there were dark areas under his eyes. He lay still in the bed and seemed very detached from what was going on. I read aloud from Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates, but I could see he was not following what I was reading. How do you feel, Schatz? I asked him. Just the same, so far, he said. 
I sat at the foot of the bed and read to myself while I waited for it to be time to give another capsule. It would have been natural for him to go to sleep, but when I looked up he was looking at the foot of the bed, looking very strangely. Why don't you try to go to sleep? I'll wake you up for the medicine. I'd rather stay awake. After a while he said to me, You don't have to stay in here with me, Papa, if it bothers you. It doesn't bother me. No, I mean, you don't have to stay if it's going to bother you. I thought perhaps he was a little light-headed, and after giving him the prescribed capsules at eleven o'clock, I went out for a while. It was a bright, cold day, the ground covered with a sleet that had frozen, so that it seemed as if all the bare trees, the bushes, the cut brush, and all the grass in the bare ground had been varnished with ice. I took the young Irish setter for a little walk up the road and along a frozen creek, but it was difficult to stand or walk on the glassy surface, and the red dog slipped and slithered, and I fell twice, hard, once dropping my gun and having it slide away over the ice. We flushed a covey of quail under a high clay bank with overhanging brush, and I killed two as they went out of sight over the top of the bank. Some of the covey lit in trees, but most of them scattered into brush piles, and it was necessary to jump on the ice-coated mounds of brush several times before they would flush. Coming out while you were poised unsteadily on the icy, springy brush, they made difficult shooting, and I killed two, missed five, and started back, pleased to have found a covey close to the house, and happy there were so many left to find on another day. At the house, they said the boy had refused to let anyone come into the room. You can't come in, he said. You mustn't get what I have. I went up to him and found him in exactly the position I had left him white-faced, but with the tops of his cheeks flushed by the fever, staring still as he had stared at the foot of the bed. I took his temperature. What is it? Something like a hundred, I said. It was one hundred and two and four-tenths. It was a hundred and two, he said. Who said so? The doctor? Your temperature is all right, I said. It's nothing to worry about. I don't worry, he said, but I can't keep from thinking. Don't think, I said. Just take it easy. I'm taking it easy, he said, and looked straight ahead. He was evidently holding tight onto himself about something. Take this with water. Do you think it will do any good? Of course it will. I sat down and opened the pirate book and commenced to read, but I could see he was not following, so I stopped. About what time do you think I'm going to die? he asked. What? About how long will it be before I die? You weren't going to die. What's the matter with you? Yes, I am. I heard him say a hundred and two. People don't die with a fever of one hundred and two. That's a silly way to talk. I know they do. At school in France, the boys told me you can't live with forty-four degrees. I've got a hundred and two. He had been waiting to die all day, ever since nine o'clock in the morning. You poor shots, I said. Poor old shots. It's like miles and kilometers. You aren't going to die. That's a different thermometer. On that thermometer, 37 is normal. On this kind, it's 98. Are you sure? Absolutely, I said. It's like miles and kilometers. You know, like how many kilometers we make when we do 70 miles in the car? Oh, he said. But his gaze at the foot of the bed relaxed slowly. The hold over himself relaxed too, finally. And the next day, it was very slack and he cried very easily at little things that were of no importance. 
A different glimpse into the usual machismo that you get in a Hemingway novel, for sure. And that's Stacy Keach, and no one reads anything like he does. As they say, he could read the phone book. Winner take nothing. A day's wait is the story. Pick up Winner Take Nothing if you want to hear the rest of them. Short stories. Hemingway may have been the greatest short story writer this country has ever seen. This is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and we love to tell stories about businesses here on our show because without businesses and particularly small businesses well where do people work and where do local governments get their money to pay for people like teachers and everybody else and today we have the story of Madam C.J. Walker and many believe she was the first self-made female millionaire she also happens to be an African-American woman and she was certainly the pioneer of the modern hair care industry. Today we have Alelia Bundles telling us the story. She was the first child in her family born free in December of 1867. They lived in an area that had been devastated by the Civil War. Everything, the plantations had been burned down, and now the formerly enslaved people were struggling to just live a life, and they had very little money. There, at the end of every season, they owed money to the plantation owners who had been their former slave owners. Madam C.J. Walker is my great-great-grandmother, and I grew up in a household where both of my parents were in the hair care business. My mother was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, which had been founded in 1906 by her great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker. So that was really my first introduction to the story of these amazing women in my family. And then years later, I really began to understand the importance and the impact of Madam C.J. Walker. But she started life as Sarah Breedlove on the same plantation in Delta, Louisiana, where her parents had been enslaved. And Sarah Breedlove, uh, as the young child in her family, it was, didn't have much opportunity for education. And then when she was seven years old, both of her parents died. She uh, had to move in with her older sister, Luvenia, and Luvenia was married to a man who was so cruel, as Sarah later said, that uh, she got married at 14 to get a home of her own. She married a man named Moses McWilliams. Very little is known about her first husband, Moses McWilliams, but they had one daughter named Alelia when Sarah was 17. And when Sarah was 20, Moses died. So now Sarah Breedlove McWilliams was a widow. She knew she wasn't gonna move back in with her sister and brother-in-law, so she moved up the Mississippi River to St. Louis, 
where her older brothers had moved about a decade earlier uh, as part of a, an exodus. Uh, the, sort of the, we hear about caravans now with people from Central America in the 1870s and 1880s. African-Americans, formerly enslaved people, just left Louisiana and Mississippi because the conditions were so horrible. There was so much racial violence and they, her brothers had moved to St. Louis to escape that treatment. So she joined her brothers in St. Louis. They had become barbers and they were doing relatively well. They had a barbershop very near St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. And Sarah joined the church. It was really the women of the church who began to give her a vision of herself as something other than an illiterate washerwoman. And that is when her life began to change. Sarah Breedlove arrived in St. Louis in around 1888. And now she was Sarah Breedlove McWilliams with a little girl who was about two years old. She had had very little formal education. There weren't schools for black children in Louisiana, even though her family minister, Curtis Pollard, had been a black state senator during Reconstruction when African-Americans had gained a great deal of political power. That power was taken away from them by the Ku Klux Klan so that by the time Sarah was old enough to go to school, there were no schools for black children. So now she's in St. Louis. She knows how to pick cotton. She knows how to wash clothes. She knows how to do domestic work. And she's struggling to raise her daughter. And life is just very difficult, even though her brothers are trying to help her and the women of the church are trying to help her. She doesn't really have enough money to make ends meet. But the women of the church really encourage her to make sure that her daughter is educated. So during the week, she is having to work away from home, having to live in as a domestic. She leaves her daughter at what was called the Colored Orphans Home. There were a number of black women who had organized because they knew there were families who were struggling. There was no daycare in the way that we think about it now. So her daughter Lelia spent uh, part of the week at the Colored Orphans Home. She went to kindergarten with the other children from the school. And then on the weekends or whenever Sarah could be with her, she helped to raise her daughter. They went to church every Sunday at St. Paul AME Church. And even though Sarah was struggling, she had a good enough voice that she was in the choir. Being in the choir allowed her to meet some of the more middle-class women, to travel around the city when the choir performed. And so she was being exposed to a way of life that made her aspire to something better. So time went on, and in 1894, a couple of her brothers had died, and so now her support system, her emotional and financial support system was really crumbling. And she met a man named John Davis. She married John Davis. She thought that that would be helpful to her, that she would be helpful in raising her daughter. And, and that turned out to be a disaster. So they ended up splitting up. But around this time, she was under so much stress and she was having so many problems uh, that she her hair began to fall out. And she said, I was so ashamed of my frightful appearance that I prayed to the Lord for a solution. And one night in a dream, a big African man appeared and he told me what to mix up for my uh, formula. And some of the ingredients came from Africa. I sent for them, I mixed them together. I applied them to my scalp and my hair began to grow back faster than it had ever fallen out. 
And so I think there is that is part of the truth. Um, it's also true that uh, that she sold products for a while for a woman who became her competitor, a woman named Annie Malone. It's also true that she worked for a while as a cook for after she moved to Denver for a man named E.L. Schultz, who owned the largest pharmacy west of the Mississippi River. And he was well aware of products that were already on the market, like Cuticura and formulas that pharmacists had been using and the medical profession had been using really for hundreds of years. A basic formula that was uh, cleaning your hair more often with a shampoo and then an ointment that contained sulfur. And sulfur is a centuries old remedy for healing dandruff and scalp infections. So that was really the combination of Sarah's dreams, Sarah selling other products, other products already being on the market, and coming up with her own formula. But I think one thing that is really important for us to understand in you know this era, in the 21st century, is that in 1906, when Sarah Breedlove McWilliams, who was to become Madam Walker, started her company and developed her formula, most Americans didn't have indoor plumbing. And that meant people didn't bathe very often. <laughs> which we don't like to think about, but, you know, people would have to go outside and pump wet, pump water at the well by hand, put it in a bucket, heat it on the, a wood stove or on an open fire, get the water hot enough to fill a big, large tin tub and take a bath. And that might happen once a week. And everybody in the family might use the same bath water. So it's really gross. But as you can see, this would not, you know, bathing was not the sort of luxury thing that we think about now. So most people didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't bathe very often. They washed their hair even less often. And Sarah was one of those women. And there were many women like her because they weren't washing their hair very often. They had really horrible scalp infections. And as a result, they were going bald. So that was really Sarah's uh, real, real problem, is that she was going bald and she wanted to figure out a way to have healthier hair. She moved to Denver in uh, 1905, and her good friend, Charles Joseph Walker, whom she had met in St. Louis, who was a newspaper man, moved to Denver. And they got married in January of 1906. And she began to take out ads in the newspaper. All of a sudden, instead of being Sarah McWilliams in her ads in the black newspaper in Denver, now she was Mrs. C.J. Walker. And then in April of 1906, she began to call herself Madam C.J. Walker. And you can think, well, that's a bit of an affectation. Uh, but it was really a nod to the fact that Paris... Uh, where people were called Madam rather than Mrs. Paris was the center of fashion and beauty culture. And she, like women who were her contemporaries, Elizabeth Arden, Helena Rubinstein, they all called themselves Madam. So it was really kind of a business honorific as well as a way to, uh, to have some respect and some dignity. And when we come back, we'll continue with the remarkable story of Madam C.J. Walker, as told beautifully by her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles. More on The Walker's Story after these messages.
And we continue with the story of Madam C.J. Walker here on Our American Stories. And she's the woman who started the modern hair care industry. Her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles, has been telling us her story. And we pick up where we last left off. You know, so she begins to sell her products. You know, her hair is now growing longer. And other women who had scalp infections like she did are wondering, Sarah, what have you done? How come your hair is growing? And she and her new husband traveled around Colorado to the various mining towns, to Trinidad, to Pueblo, to Colorado Springs. And even though Colorado had a really small black population and that was her target audience, there were um, you know, black residents in all of these towns because people had gone just like other Americans to try to be part of the gold rush, to try to be part of the silver rush, to do the mining in Colorado. So Sarah was selling her products and, you know, traveling around. And it really became clear to her that she could only grow her market so much in a state where there were very few black residents. So she and Charles Joseph Walker began to travel around the southwestern part of the United States in the south. They went to Texas, to Kansas, to Oklahoma, Mississippi, Louisiana. So every town she would go to, she would demonstrate the products. She would find a woman in town who seemed to have a scalp infection and that she would hire a room in a church and get the water heated and wash the woman's hair and then show just what her products could do. And then she was always very good about picking out the women who seemed to have the most personality and who might be leaders in their church, who might be with their missionary society or with their choir. She had a really great knack for finding women who were leaders. And she would pick that woman woman to be her sales agent. So that when she left the town, she would leave a supply of products with that person and then she would stay in touch. And then as the woman began to develop a customer base, she would order more products from Sarah. She had asked her daughter to move to Denver so that she would have somebody who was mixing up the products as she and her husband were traveling around. So they continued for about a year and a half, um, going to as many towns as possible. She was very smart about advertising. She'd take out a little ad in whatever black newspaper for the town where she was going the next week so that she would have a crowd. She knew how to develop a crowd and how to create buzz. So after about a year and a half, she needed to find a new base. And she had been along the East Coast by now, and she decided to settle in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh seemed, she must have met somebody there. She always connected with the African Methodist Episcopal Church congregation. She would find a friend who would let her stay. You know, somebody would write a letter and she would be able to stay with the minister or the doctor, black doctors, because most hotels were not open to, um, you know, black clientele at that point because of the horrible Jim Crow segregation. But she settled in Pittsburgh and she had her daughter come from Denver to Pittsburgh. Now she and her husband, Charles Joseph Walker, and her daughter are living there. They open the first beauty school called Lelia College, which she named after her daughter. And then they began to train even more women. She continued traveling in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And in 1909, she visited Indianapolis. And she was really looking for a new base. And she was very impressed with Indianapolis. When she got there, 
she noticed that there was a very thriving black business community. There were three black newspapers, including uh, one that was a nationally distributed newspaper called the Indianapolis Freeman. So this Indianapolis Freeman was uh, something Madam Walker immediately recognized as a great place to advertise. She took out an ad and she used before and after photographs. The before picture she put in the center and her hair was very short, and this was when her hair had been falling out. And then on either side in a sort of trio of pictures, she had a front view and a side view, and her hair was long and her hair was down to the middle of her back and very healthy. And it was kind of like a Jenny Craig commercial. I mean, you could really see the, you know, the impact that her products really worked. And in that, uh, in this ad, she took the, a, a third of the page from top to bottom, placed the pictures at the top, and then the ad included letters that were testimonials from women who both were her customers and women who were her sales agents. And she, one woman wrote her a letter and she said, before I started using Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower, my hair was an eighth of an inch long, and now my hair is down my back. And I have been able to throw my wig away. So this was real, you know, you know, real endorsement uh, that said the products worked. But there were also letters from women who had become her sales agents. And one woman said, you have made it possible for a black woman to make more money in a day selling your products than she could in a month working in somebody's kitchen. This was huge because there was so much discrimination against, you know, women in general working outside the home, but especially women of color, that the only jobs that they could be hired for were maids and cooks and laundresses and sharecroppers. So for a woman to be able to make her own money, her own independent money, meant she didn't have to go work in somebody else's house, live in somebody else's house and leave her children at home. She could have her own business in her house, uh, doing hair, or selling products. And so these, so Madam Walker always was pushing not just the products and you can feel beautiful at a time when very few people were telling black women they were beautiful. She always pushed financial and economic independence and empowerment. So these ads were very powerful. Added to that, one of the reasons she had picked Indianapolis is because it was a transportation hub. It was called the Crossroads of America, and that was because of all of the trains that went through Indianapolis every day. At that point in 1910, it was near the center of population in America. The Western United States was still pretty sparsely populated. California was not the powerhouse that we think of it now with a large population. So Indiana really had quite a bit of a train traffic. And because the trains were going through town, that meant that it was a great place for her to do business with her mail order business. It also meant that the black men who worked on the trains, the Pullman porters, who were traveling from coast to coast, could take papers, copies of the Indianapolis Freeman, and sell those papers as they traveled around. So Madam Walker placed her ad in the Indianapolis Freeman, knowing that these black Pullman porters would pick up stacks of those papers as they came through town. And if they were going to San Francisco or Boston or Detroit or Atlanta or New York or Chicago, her ads were going to be seen by people. She really was a marketing uh, and distribution genius. 
By training thousands of women to be her sales agents, she developed a workforce, an army of women who were selling her products. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Madam C.J. Walker. And again, it's being told so beautifully by her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles. And what's most striking is it's almost a history lesson of a sort, too. And that's what we try to do here with so many of our stories. And we're looking for your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we were talking, and this could easily be one of our American Dreamers stories, too. In fact, we should make it so. Because free enterprise has been the way out for so many people in this great country and a way forward and a way to improve, well, improve our own lives, our own families' lives. So when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Madam C.J. Walker, the first self-made female millionaire, her story, and in a way, her great-great-granddaughter's story, too, because you can tell here that the great-great-granddaughter has just tremendous affection carrying on this remarkable family story. Madam C.J. Walker's story continues here on Our American Stories. to hear the last segment of the story of Madam C.J. Walker, the pioneer of the women's hair care industry and the first woman to become a self-made millionaire in this country. Her success came from her great product and her amazing ability to advertise and market. Let's get back to the story. She traveled most of the year going from town to town doing lectures. One of the things that I, one, one story I remember from her secretary, she had a secretary who came to work for her in 1914 when she was still a teenager. And when I was growing up and really starting to do my research, Violet Reynolds was still working for the Walker Company. One story that her, her secretary, Violet Reynolds, told me, so Madam Walker had very little formal education, but she was a self-educated woman. She hired um, a woman named Alice Kelly, who was the dean of girls at a school called Eckstein Norton, a black school in Kentucky. And she had great leadership skills, but she hired Alice Kelly to be the manager of her factory, but she also really hired her as a personal tutor. But she was always improving. She really believed in lifelong learning so that when she was in and whenever she was in Indianapolis, because she was traveling so much, but on those days when she was in, in, in Indianapolis, she would gather the young ladies who worked in her office and have a meeting with them and talk to them about her travels and tell stories. But she also would read the newspaper with them. They would read the newspaper together. And some of the girls had some education, some had more than others, but everybody wanted to learn. And if somebody in reading the newspaper discovered a word they didn't know, she would have them look it up together in the dictionary. 
And she said, there's no shame in not knowing. We all should be trying to improve ourselves. So 1910, when Madam Walker moves to Indianapolis, she's just really, just on the cusp of breaking out. She's still, you know, making a few thousand dollars a year, which is more money than most, you know, even white businessmen in, in America are making at the time. But she's just really poised to become nationally known. And shortly after she moves to Indianapolis, there is a big push to build a new YMCA in the black community. Her, she has become, Madam Walker becomes friends with George Knox, the publisher of the Indianapolis Freeman, the paper that has done so much to improve her uh, advertisements and to raise her profile. George Knox is the chairman of the board of the black YMCA. And Madam Walker's very impressed with what he does. And shortly after Madam Walker arrives in Indianapolis, this big push to build a YMCA is led by George Knox. He invites Jesse Moreland, one of the first black secretaries of the YMCA, to come to Indianapolis to do what he has done in many other cities, which is to uh, hold a big rally to raise money. Uh, and he has persuaded Julius Rosenwald the uh, president of Sears Roebuck to pledge $25,000 to any city in America where the black and white communities will work together to raise the balance of $75,000 to build a $100,000 building. So Jesse Morland comes to Indianapolis and holds a rally, brings together the leadership of the black YMCA and the leadership of the white YMCA and some of the wealthy white businessmen uh, who are at Eli Lilly and at the Indianapolis 500 Speedway racetrack, uh, stand up during the rally and they pledge $1,000, $5,000, $10,000 to this effort to build this YMCA. Now, understanding that YMCAs are still racially segregated in 1910, but this was going to be something that would help the black community. So Madam Walker, to everyone's surprise, stood up and said, I pledge $1,000. And I'm doing this because I believe if I help our boys, it will help our girls. And that is what I am interested in. Now, people were stunned. No black woman had ever contributed that amount of money to that kind of secular cause. And she began to be written about in newspapers, not just black newspapers, but white newspapers. People wanted to know the secret to her success. And they were writing about not just her business, but they were writing about her philanthropy. And eventually the, the YMCA was built, but Madam Walker in the meantime realized that people wanted to hear her story. And so her crowds began to get larger. She traveled from town to town to sell her products. And she decided during the summer of 1912 that she wanted to attend the National Negro Business League Convention. That organization had been founded by Booker T. Washington, who was the most powerful black man in America. He had had dinner at the White House with Theodore Roosevelt. That was quite controversial because segregation was still a very much a part of the ethos of America. Madam Walker arrived at the 1912 National Negro Business League Convention 
uh, and sent word to Booker T. Washington that she wished to tell her story. She wanted to be included on the program. And she had met Booker T. Washington before, but he had been relatively dismissive of her. He had pretty much ignored her. But she was not a woman who wanted to be ignored. So on the first day of the convention, she asked politely about speaking, and he overlooked her. And on the second day of the convention, her good friend George Knox, the publisher of the Indianapolis Freeman, stood up and said, we should hear from Madam C.J. Walker. She is the woman who gave $1,000 to the building fund of the YMCA in my hometown of Indianapolis. She has an incredible story to tell. And even though Knox was a longtime member of the National Negro Business League and a good friend of Booker T. Washington's, he dismissed George Knox. And Booker T. Washington said, you know, we're discussing lifetime membership. But rather than call on somebody to discuss lifetime membership, he called upon one of Madam Walker's neighbors from Indianapolis, a man named H.L. Saunders. And Mr. Saunders proceeded to talk about his business. Now, he was very successful, and his business was now a regional business with customers in Indiana and the four surrounding states. At this point, Madam Walker, just six years after she had started the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, had customers all over the United States, the Caribbean, and Central America. As it turns out, Mr. Saunders had been the treasurer for the fundraising campaign for the YMCA. Uh, and he had given the very generous sum of $250. But Madam Walker, of course, had given four times as much, $1,000. Now, I know she was a good church-going woman and she knew that you weren't supposed to compare what you put into the collection basket to what others put in. However, I can't help but imagine that she felt at least a twinge of resentment. And on the third and final day of the conference, as the last banker was completing his report, she stood at her seat, looked toward Booker T. Washington at the podium and said, surely you are not going to shut the door in my face. I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the washed up. From there, I was promoted to the kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself. I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. And I have built my own factory on my own ground. The next year, he invited her back as a keynote speaker. So Madam Walker was a person who had worked hard all her life. And she said, when she was a washerwoman, she said, when I was, when I was a washerwoman, I was an excellent washerwoman. I, I took pride in my work. I always took pride in my work, and I always knew that hard work was important. But when people would ask her the secret to her success, she would say to them, there is no royal flower-strewn path to success. And if there is, I have not found it. For whatever success I have attained has been the result of much hard work and many sleepless nights. I got my start by giving myself a start. So don't sit down and wait for the opportunities to come. You have to get up and make them for yourself. 
You know, she became very wealthy, and it was a, really an American rags to riches story. She had been born on a plantation in Delta, Louisiana, one of the poorest areas in America, an area that had been devastated during the Civil War, and she was on a cotton plantation making no money. So, and orphaned at an, a very early age, very little education, and yet by the time she died, in May of 1919, she was living in a mansion in one of the wealthiest communities in America, just a few miles away from John D. Rockefeller. She had, during those 51 years, gone from an uneducated washerwoman to a millionaire. And great job on that, Faith, and thanks again to Alelia Bundles for narrating and telling this remarkable story of her great-great-grandmother, and that's Madam C.J. Walker. And what a story that was, her donation to the YMCA. It just, that $1,000, what it meant to her, what it meant to her life to be able to be a woman and an African-American woman and do that. I got my start by giving myself a start. And whatever success I've had has been the result of much hard work and many sleepless nights. And no finer words can be said about anyone who wants to go down the road of entrepreneurship and cutting your own path. And what a terrific story. Again, send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org about your people, your family, somebody in your family like Madam C.J. Walker. This is Our American Stories, Madam C.J. Walker's story and her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles.